All right, today I want to start with a fun little game. Some of you are going to love this. Some of you I know from past experience are going to hate this. I'm sorry. But I want to try something. Can we kill the lights? Now, before we do this, I have to prepare you. So I want you to, to work with me on this. So this is a little exercise that will help you learn how to see what you may or may not be able to see in a moment. Uh, but if you're not prepped, it's going to be very difficult. So what I want you to do is I want you to take your two fingers like this. Okay? You with me? And then I want you to bring them together in front of your face. But as they come together, I want you to look at the wall on the other side of your two fingers. Okay? So don't look at your fingers. Just look ahead. Now, what do you see? You have like a floating little sausage finger between your fingers. Yeah, do you see that? And notice that as you look past it, you can still look at it, but you're actually looking at the wall behind you. It's like if your fingers were a window, you're looking through the window to see what's behind the, on the other side of the window, but you can still see in front of you. All right, you get that little floating sausage? Okay. That way of looking is what you're going to need to use to do this little magic eye experiment thing here, okay? So I'm going to show you a couple flat, colorful images. But if you're able to look through those images as if they were a window, uh, you might see something appear. This was really popular in the late 80s and early 90s, formative time in my youth, and I'm finally able to bring it into circa 2017. Okay, now just look at this. It's on the screen. All right, now, you're, you're, it's as if you're looking through the screen. Let me know if anything pops out to you. Oh, someone says it's a shark. Is it? Can we get confirmation? It's always a shark. Is that what someone said? All right. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So, who saw something? Clap. All right, there's three or four people who may have seen something or just didn't want to be left out. Okay, let's show the next image. Ooh. <laughs> By the way, I did test both of these images. They do work. There is actually something there. I'm not a cruel man. I mean, a little cruel for using magic eye, but this is not just a, it is actual real magic eye thing. I'll give you a few more seconds. Does anybody see anything? It's a what? All right, who, who, who thinks they saw something in the blue image? What did you see? Call it out. It was a shark. Yeah, see, I'm not making this stuff up. Of course, I could have just waited to see what people said and said, that's what it was. All right, who, what, who saw something in the red? Clap your hands a little bit. Okay, so you hear how few claps there were, so if you didn't, don't feel bad. Uh, but uh, what did you see? Wow. See, that, 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 that's just the spirit of God right there. Anyone see anything else? Someone saw a dinosaur. What kind? A, a what? A diplodocus? Whoa. Well, technically it's supposed to be like a T-Rex, but, you know, 
uh, whoever you were in the back, I can't see because I had you turn off the lights, but um, yes, it was a dinosaur. Okay, now everyone shake your head out. Shake your head out. Turn the lights back on, please. So what we're going to talk about today is seeing clearly. See what I did there? And what can enable us to see life, what's happening around us, other people, situations, opportunity, God, and particularly injustice, clearly. Particularly injustice because, as we mentioned earlier in the service, we're at the front end of our 40 Days series, which we do every year. This year, it's 40 Days of Justice and Compassion, where we've just started to explore Jesus' mission statement for his life. The mission statement you can find in Luke chapter 4 which reads like this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus took that scripture from Isaiah and announced it to everyone who would hear as his own mission statement. He said, this was written about me. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And last week, we looked at an overview of this entire passage. And this week, we're going to start to break his mission statement down line by line. But we're not going in order. So this week, we're actually looking at recovery of sight for the blind, which is the third group of people that Jesus says he's received the Spirit to empower. But we're talking about it first, and there's a reason for that. We're doing that because it seems that to adjust or just to address conditions of injustice and recognize opportunities for compassion, we have to first be able to see clearly the conditions and opportunities that are before us. Does that make sense? And that's not a given. We can be blind to what's happening in the world around us. We don't have to be. And if we discover a new reality of awareness, we will also, and this is the key for our entire series, discover Jesus. You know, uh, a woman in the back over here saw Jesus in that picture, which I did not plan, but there's something to that. There's something to finding Jesus in the middle of discovering what's really going on around in the world behind, around in the world around you. We can be blind to what's happening around us. So as we'll see, recovery of sight to the blind certainly, I think, in this passage refers to miraculous healing of disabilities. (laughs) But it also refers to the ability of everyone in this room to see. So let's take a look at our main passage for today. This is Mark chapter 8, 14 to 26. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, Is it because we have no bread? And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for 5,000 and how many basket pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, Seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He looked the blind man, or he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and had put hands on him, 
Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, do not even go into the village. Now, as I've looked at this passage over the years, I think that it really turns on two key questions that can help us see clearly. And one is stated just straight out by Jesus, and the other is implied. So it can be understood through the action of the story. And what I want us to do, we're going to start with the one that Jesus asked out loud, and then we're going to catch up to the one that's sort of implied through the passage. And the first question is in verse 17, where Jesus asks, are your hearts hardened? Are your hearts hard? Now that question happens right in the middle of our story, right when the disciples are in the process of missing Jesus. Did you notice that? He's mi- they're missing him, but not just by a little bit. They're missing him by a mile. And it seems that having a hardened heart is a condition that can keep you and keep me from understanding what Jesus is up to around us. A hardened heart, I think, from the action of the story and just from what it sounds like, is something we want to avoid. Well, how can you tell if you have a hardened heart or if your heart is starting to harden? And I think what we can see in this passage is there are some real clues. If we just take a look at the people either that Jesus references or that he interacts with, I think we can see some of the dangerous situations that can lead our hearts into a hardened state. And the first is this. Be mindful if you already know the answers. Be mindful if you already know the answers. So this really applies when we look at the Pharisees and at Herod. So Jesus refers to the Pharisees and Herod when he says, be careful. Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, why? Well, first of all, yeast uh, can be a good thing or a bad thing. But the thing about yeast is if you put a little bit of yeast in any dough, any bakers here? Oh, a few. All right. So you put a little yeast in any dough and it's going to spread through the whole lump. And it's going to infect in either a good way or a bad way, all of the dough that you have. It doesn't just stay in a corner. It just sort of moves its way through the whole lump of dough. So that's one thing about yeast. But what's interesting about Jesus saying, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, is that those are two groups that it's odd for Jesus to put together. They're two groups that you would assume were opposed to each other. So uh, Herod was a king, the king of Judea, who'd been put in place by the powers in Rome, the occupying army and force in first century Palestine. So Herod wasn't uh, a local. He wasn't even Jewish, but he was put in charge of the Jewish homeland uh, by the Roman emperor. Now, if there was one group that wasn't cool with that, it was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a very religious elite group of the day. They were very serious about their faith and very serious about their nationalism. And they did not want, just as most people did not want, Roman rule in their homeland. And so they were praying for and even trying to follow the Bible so closely. They thought if they could follow every letter of the law well enough, then God would send to them a great leader known as the Messiah. And that Messiah would lead a revolt and a revolution and kick the Romans out. Okay? So Herodians, or Herod, or Herodians, the people who follow Herod, and Pharisees were not two people you usually think of together. They were usually opposed, but Jesus puts them together. He links them. 
And I think we can learn something about what a hard heart is by the things that those two groups of people have in common. So when Jesus, for example, is on trial later in front of Herod, uh, it says this, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. For what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Okay, that's interesting. He wants to see a sign. Now, Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees right before this story. So in Mark chapter 8, 11 through 13, it says this. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back in the boat, and crossed the other side. So when we picked up our story today in the boat, that's what happened right before. Now, in both cases, Herod and the Pharisees, they ask for a sign, but Jesus refuses to give one. If you read the Herodian story, it's the same thing. Jesus won't give him a sign either. Now, this, I think, can be confusing because, after all, it really seems like Jesus is sort of way into giving people signs. So in the passage today, he references two crazy, fantastic miracles that thousands of people saw. So he feeds the 4,000 people with seven loaves, and I think it's 7,000 people with five loaves. I might get the number of loaves wrong. doesn't matter. Five, six, seven, it's pretty amazing, right? Those are big signs that thousands and thousands of people see. Probably in that mix somewhere, there's someone who is loyal to Herod, someone who's a Pharisee. So these signs are happening. In this passage, Jesus heals a person. That's a sign. So Jesus is doing signs all the time. But here, I think, is the difference. Herod and the Pharisees aren't really asking Jesus to just do any old sign. If all they were looking for was signs, they were happening all around them. Some of them probably ate a piece of the sign that happened before their eyes. They don't want just any old sign. They're not open to seeing any old miracle as a sign. They want to see Jesus do particular signs, as if they have some sort of checklist that a Messiah or a true prophet or the Son of God must do to truly be the Messiah. In other words, they're not coming to learn from Jesus. They've learned all they need to know. They're coming to judge Jesus. So learners, they observe, they watch for what God is doing, and then they make discoveries. Judges have a checklist. Is God or this person or something the way I think it should be happening? Is it happening that way? And those folks can only see what they already know. And so their hearts are hardened because they can only see one thing. Or one of a few things. But the problem is, you can get stuck unless something fits your preconceived notions. And that's something God doesn't necessarily try to oblige. He's not as into our preconceived notions as we are. So that's one way you can harden our heart. Figure it all out. Know all the answers. Have nothing left to learn. Another way. You feel overwhelmed by guilt. Keep this one in mind. Now, there's a second group of people who interact with Jesus in this passage, his followers, the disciples, and they have an interesting interaction. In, Mark, or in, 
in verse 15, it says, Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, Is it because we have no bread? And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Are you still talking about, or why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? So here's an example or a situation where Jesus is about to or trying to or in the process of revealing some really cool things to the disciples. He's about to lay on some high-tech preaching, teaching, blow-your-mind stuff right now, okay? But not only do the disciples miss the meaning of the lesson he's trying to teach them, they don't even get that he's teaching them a lesson. Why? Well, the disciples, I think, are missing a great opportunity to learn from Jesus because they're so quick to judge themselves. Another way to say this is I think they feel so bad about themselves and become so overwhelmed by circumstances that they can't see what Jesus is doing right now, right in front of them. I have a good friend, Mike. Uh, We had a conversation a little bit ago. Uh, And he said that uh, people, he said, we tend to feel really bad about the present state of our lives. Just really bad. And he says, we spend all of our time lamenting our past mistakes and put all of our hope in the future that makes our present miserable. We feel bad about things. We see our mistakes. It's funny, I never thought about making mistakes hardening my heart. But there's that potential. If we get so wrapped into that and feel so guilty about things that have happened in the past or mistakes that we've made, that we can't see what God is trying to do right now. Another way that, uh, thing that we should be mindful of to protect our hearts is when life hasn't been fair. Now, the third person in our story, who actually turns out to be one of the heroes of the story, uh, is the blind man. And he doesn't have a hard heart. You know, but maybe he should. You know, he's been dealt a pretty rough hand, wouldn't you say? He's either lost his eyesight somewhere along the way, or he's been born blind. And it's happened to him in a day and time in a society that didn't have the social services that we have today. There were no ADA laws in the first century Palestine. And he was likely dependent on the generosity of his family and friends. And I'm sure he'd found ways to make his life work. I'm sure he'd found ways to be independent. But he didn't have the privileges and advantages of his peers. And it would have been easy to understand if he hardened his heart. But he doesn't. What's the difference? And what's the difference that can make all the difference for us? And here's where I want to pivot. Here's where I think the second question is that isn't outrightly stated, but I think it's implied. And that question is, will you look intently? Will you look intently? Intently. Here's where I'm going with this. In verse 25, our translation today says, uh, uh, I, I think, is missing a little something. It says that Jesus touched the man and his eyes were completely healed. That's great. That's true. That's accurate. But other translations have a little nuance included in the way they translate that verse from Greek to English. So many translations translate verse 25 to say uh, that Jesus made him look up or that the blind man looked hard, or that the man being healed looked intently and was restored. Looked intently. And this is important because it implies that there's an element of us 
if we want to see more clearly, participating in the process, choosing to look, choosing to look intently, as if the blind man didn't have to, as if he could have said, I'm done with this, I've had enough of this. And this, I think, is what creates space for realizations, for discoveries, the kind that soften our hearts. They act like a balm, if you will. Balm for a hard heart. Balm for a heart that is hardening. And here's a few things that I think serve as that balm that are reasons that we should choose to look intently or what we can expect as we do. And that is this. It's better to be a learner than a judge. I think we've sort of highlighted that already today. We see this with the Pharisees and Herod. They knew the answers. They were just looking for confirmation of what they already knew. They learned everything. They knew how to categorize people. There was nowhere to go. And Jesus could perform amazing miracles right in front of them, right in front of their faces, and they couldn't see it. If you know, you can't see anything new. So it's better to be a learner than a judge. That can help our, our souls, our hearts to be softened. Next, and this is important, it's going to be uncomfortable. Looking intently, choosing to look intently is going to be uncomfortable. If you look at the story, you've got this man with his disability. He's blind. Jesus grabs him by the hand and leads him outside the city. So I, I, I can only imagine how awkward that would be if you couldn't see, if someone grabs you by the hand and pulls you somewhere. You don't know where you're going. You don't know when it's going to stop. You can't see where you are. That's awkward. It's uncomfortable. Then what does Jesus do? Jesus spits in his eyes. That's gross. That's uncomfortable. That's messy. It is. But what does the blind man do? He keeps trying to see. He pushes in. He leans in. He looks intently. He looks more intently. You see, new sight, new clarity, awareness happens in the context of uncomfortable experiences conversations, and discoveries. Neat and tidy is what you know, what you have figured out. Revelation happens in the mess. It can be emotional, unnerving. Seeing injustice and real need is not an experience that puts a smile on your face, that gives you a warm feeling, that makes you relax. And feel comfortable. If we're really going to be engaged with issues of justice in our country, in the city of Philadelphia, in our neighborhoods, we're going to have to be okay with being uncomfortable. Really okay with it. So that we can really learn and really see. And that, my friends, is gloriously uncomfortable. You know, as a, a council, the church council and I have been talking in the midst of everything that's happening in our country around 
issues of race and injustice and violence. What can our community do in the midst of this community to make a difference? Like, what would be meaningful? What would be practical? And so we've been doing some work on our own. So just recently, uh, we had a consultant come in that we respect to do anti-racism training with the council. And you know, honestly, uh, that isn't always an uncomfortable type of training. And wait, that isn't always a comfortable type of training to be a part of. You know, you learn things that don't feel good. You know, one thing that I've, I've, I've learned throughout some of my studies and classwork that I've done is the idea that race just in general is a social construct, meaning it was created uh, but wasn't always. So, for example, I think growing up, I just assumed that for as long as there was time in history, people saw themselves as white and black and Latino and Asian or whatever fill-in-the-blank race you choose. But you know what? That's not true. For millennia and millennia, people always saw themselves in terms of where they were from, what piece of land they grew up and lived in. In Europe, people were Britons, people were French, people were German. They weren't white. Around the globe, people were Senegalese, they were Moroccan, they were Japanese, based on where they were born, based on where they lived, based on their ethnicity. Race is something that did not exist before colonialism. And it wasn't until... Uh, Europeans began circumnavigating the globes and conquering other people, taking land and setting up their own businesses, their own colonies, that the category of white was invented. And it was invented... Some of you uncomfortable? It was invented so that Europeans could consolidate power and wealth and justify taking lands and labor from other people groups. So if you read history books from ancient times, there's no mention of any races, just ethnicities. It was only to control power and wealth in the colonial area that the idea of white, black, anything else was created. It's not to say there weren't ethnic struggles. People fought wars with other ethnic groups for all of history. But one of the things I was reminded of and taught in clear way during this training was the history of the creation of the idea of being white or black or something else. Sitting with that is uncomfortable for a white person. It doesn't feel good. You know, as a white person, that's not comfortable knowledge to gain. And to be honest, it'd be easier to just say the past is the past. Let's just focus on forgiveness and reconciliation and moving forward. But you can't forgive what you don't acknowledge. And you can't reconcile what you don't own. And you can't move forward with any depth if you don't understand where you've been. And if you don't learn about race 
how it was created and woven into the very nature of all of our systems in America, like yeast working its way through the dough, how can you really see how it continues to affect people today? How can you see clearly? And I think on this point, and if I haven't made you uncomfortable already, since it's in our passage today, I'm going to try to make you uncomfortable at this point. At this point, I think white people, I'm going to talk to you, we particularly need to embrace uncomfortability if we want to deal in real ways with issues of justice. And I'm speaking directly to white people because we are the ones who can choose whether to engage with the history and realities of racism in our society or not. People of color don't get to choose. The uncomfortability is thrust upon them. They are forced to deal with these realities every day of their lives. So we, white people, have to be careful about avoidance. And if we want to be part of a community that reflects the kingdom of God in a real way, to get there takes work. Uncomfortable, glorious work. I read an article that quoted uh, Vernon Myers uh, saying, not enough white people have done their work. And so that got my attention. So here's a a larger quote from her. Uh, She says, after all the resources spent on goodwill extended, wait, after all the resources spent and goodwill extended, many white people in exasperation ask me why we haven't gotten further in racial understanding or increasing the diversity in our workplaces and lives. Sometimes they don't like my response. I tell them what I've come to believe. Not enough white people have done their work, the work of seeing the barriers to true meritocracy, the work of putting themselves in the shoes of black people to learn more about their experiences and perceptions, the work of understanding how being white has shaped their worldview and self-perceptions, and the work of gaining the skills of deciphering and managing cross-racial and cultural dynamics. That's a lot of work. But without it, you cannot create fundamental change in your sphere of influence. There's a lot of people I know who want to see fundamental change in their sphere of influence. But what we're talking about is something that just doesn't happen in one moment in time. Here's our next bomb for your soul. And that is to understand that discovery is often a gradual process. Now, scholars, when they talk about the passage we're looking at today, and they look at this healing right here, uh, they generally think that it's not just a uh, a straight-out story of healing, which it is, but they think it's strategically placed that the author, Mark, put this story here on purpose to illustrate what's happening around the story. You see the disciples not quite getting it, not being able to see. After this passage, uh, Jesus is trying to tell the disciples that he has to sacrifice himself, that he's going to be crucified and then raised again, and they're not quite getting it. It's about seeing clearly in many more senses than just a physical healing. It's like an enacted parable, a living parable for those who read it and see it and experience it. Clear sight develops over time. You know, there's this phrase these days that are applied to majority culture. Are you you woke? Are you a person who gets it, who knows the history of injustice and racism in our country uh, and, and sort of 
have incorporated it into who you are and how you understand the world around you. So the question we can ask ourselves, I ask myself, am I woke? And the answer is a resounding, I have no idea. I don't know. Probably not. But I do see some things more clearly than I did five years ago, and some things more clearly than I did 10 years ago. But there's a lot more blurriness than I like to admit. And while I like to see clearly, I'm okay with that because I feel like I'm seeing more clearly than I did. And it's messy. But here's why the mess is worth it for all of us. I don't want to just tell you, oh yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable. Deal with it. There's a reason. There's a goal. There's an outcome. Certainly more justice in our world. Certainly healed communities. But it's important to remember that in this passage, that when the disciples are confused, when they're not seeing what's happening in the boat, and they're talking about bread after Jesus just provided thousands and thousands of people with miraculous bread, Jesus is right there with them. He's in the mess. He's right in front of the blind man in this story. To be in the mess is to be near Jesus, to experience him firsthand, to see his miracles, to be the recipient of his miraculous power, to be on the adventure, messy but glorious. A part of what the God of the universe is up to, you're in there, connected to him, in his presence. That's the pearl of great price. That's where life has its most meaning, its most vibrancy. That's transcendence. That's full and overflowing life. It's not in denial. It's not in choosing to be comfortable. What you get there is just what you already have. And if you've already got everything, good for you. But for me, I want more. And what I have right now and all the blessings in my life are great and I'm thankful. But I know I'm in process and I know there's so much more. And I think as a community, there is so much more for us. So leaning into uncomfortability is worth it, even though it's uncomfortable. It's the presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus. It's in the mess. It's not in the comfort. Not even close. Let's pray. Let's just wait a second. I'm just going to take a moment and invite the presence of God to be here with us. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence here. Come, Holy Spirit. as a community, we welcome you, Jesus, 
And if you bring mess with you, we welcome the mess. We don't want to be the same in a year as what we are right now. With the same understandings, with the same relationships, the same tools, whatever. We want to follow you where you lead, even if it's uncomfortable. It's worth it. Let us see what's really going on. Let us see what's really happened. Let us see you in the middle of all of it, shaping it to bring something redemptive into our lives and our culture and our city. We want that. We pray for that. We want you and your presence. Amen. Well, today is a special service for, in a particular way that it usually isn't, and that is that today we have the opportunity uh, to be part of a, the dedication of one of our young children to Jesus. So I'd like to invite Jamie to come up, who is going to lead us through that time. Also, if you're on the worship team, kind of shimmy your way up here real quickly right now before all the families get involved uh, so that you're in places we move forward.